This is Unfilter, episode 298, for April 1st, 2020. The pulsating red light atop the Empire State Building, a beacon above the city as unmistakable these days as the state of emergency on the city streets below. As the nation's largest largest city has been silenced, except for the near constant wail of sirens taking patients to city hospitals. Good evening, day 1167 of this Trump administration, 217 days to go until the presidential election. If you have not yet experienced hard times in your life or in the community where you live, it became increasingly clear today that this country is indeed headed for very hard times. Hello, friends, and welcome into Unfilter, episode 298. How is that possible? My name is Chris. Yes, this is your Corona cracking cast. It's the second Unfilter of the week, too. How's that feel? Got another one coming up late this weekend, episode 299, and then the big 300. Monday night, unfilter.show slash live. And the chat on filter.show slash discord, which is popping off. Thank you, everybody, who's taken a moment to join the discord. I think it's maybe the highlight of this last week. Because, you know, let's be honest, things are a little grim these days. And we're being set up for things to be even grimmer. And so there is actually some real joy I take from community coming together. It's it's kind of awesome. And it. It really is an example of how we are actually here for each other. We are all in this together. I'm in it with you. I'm following the data. I'm following the news. And if it does get a lot worse here in the States or around the world over the next couple of weeks, which it seems like it's likely to, we'll be there for each other. And I'll keep following the data and I'll keep following the stories. So let's start off with some of these very dark estimates of how the next month or so are really going to start to look really starting pretty soon. President Trump holding a press conference a short time ago where he and the coronavirus task force warning Americans about the difficult times that lie ahead. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks. And then hopefully, as the experts are predicting, as I think a lot of us are predicting after having studied it so hard, you're going to start seeing some real light at the end of the tunnel, but this is going to be a very painful, very, very painful two weeks. So what we're going to see, and that's we got to brace ourselves, in the next several days to a week or so, we're going to continue to see things go up. We cannot be discouraged by that because the mitigation is actually working and will work. There's also, before I continue, there's also the fact that even as the mitigation start to kick in and people start to get uh, infected at a slower rate, the deaths trail that. So the death count will continue to go up even if we're properly managing this thing. What an extraordinary thing this could be if every American followed these. She's talking about revised guidelines 
the 15-day stay-at-home policy that the federal government was advising has now been turned into a 30-day. And it takes us to that stippled mountain that's much lower, a hill actually, down to 100 to 200,000 deaths, which is still way too much. We don't accept that number that that's what's going to be. We're going to be doing everything we can to get it even significantly below that. So, you know, I don't want it to be a mixed message. This is the thing that we need to anticipate, but that doesn't mean that that's what we're going to accept. We want to do much, much better than that. As we record right now, the numbers are not nearly that high. They're near 5,000. But it does represent a big shift in where they saw this thing going and what they're publicly talking about, which is significant. And, of course, it's something the media is going to just put an underscore underneath and bold the text and italicize it. I don't know where that came from. We're going to see more of that shack attack. It just makes you smile. Welcome to CBS this morning from our house to yours. Out of an abundance of caution, we're coming to you once again this morning from our respective homes. If I made a big deal about this every time. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Unfiltered Show. I'm coming to you once again from Lady Jupes, from my mobile zombie apocalypse bunker on wheels, running from solar power. My name is Chris. Like, that's, you know, I mean... Very good. Good job. Now fix your audio, sort out the delay, you know, catch up to the podcast. But they're all still doing this, making a big deal about it. You've heard us talk about social distancing. Well, we are certainly doing that, as we hope you are, too. But the most important thing, as you know, is that we continue bringing you the news, which we will do throughout this crisis. And that, of course, is where we begin. It's almost like you don't need giant studios and a studio full of 35 people to do the news. It's, it's almost like the news doesn't require all that. Anthony, on this April Fool's Day, I wish this was one big bad joke, but unfortunately it's not. It's reality and it's not good. Yeah, and it's getting more serious, Gail. We start here this morning. The White House is warning Americans about a grim reality still to come. In a blunt press conference, President Trump's coronavirus task force at, says we should be prepared for another 100,000 to 240,000 Americans to lose their lives before the pandemic is over. That is up 60 times. That is up to 60 times the current death toll. More than 4,000 lives have been lost in the first month of the crisis, the vast majority just in the past week. Around 900 people died yesterday, setting another single-day record. Up and up and up the numbers go. Um, it's pretty grim, and that's why I say as this goes on, it's, it's going to get harder and harder to hear this stuff. We just have to stay cool. Panicking won't solve anything. So, of course, this is a projection, and it's a projection based on using um, very much what's happened in Italy and then looking at all the models. Um, and so, as you saw on that slide, that was our real number, that 100,000 to 200,000. And we think that that is the range. We really believe and hope every day that we can do a lot better than that, um, because that's not assuming 100% of every American does everything that they're supposed to be doing. But I think that's possible. I don't think so. You hear bits and pieces about South Korea. It seems that they are seeing a slight decline in their uh, coronavirus cases, and they've managed to flatten that curve. That's the other thing that they've attributed, and they've managed to do it pretty quickly. You also hear a lot about their per capita testing you don't really hear about their approach to this entire thing beyond the technology side. This clip gives us some of that context out of South Korea. 
Along the banks of the Han River, many people are doing what they haven't done for weeks: venturing outside, enjoying the spring sunshine and the cherry blossom, but with reminders everywhere to maintain social distancing of at least two meters apart. Other signs warn that as crowds build, the avenues of cherry trees will have to be closed. I guess it's okay for people to see the cherry blossom and enjoy it before they close the road. On the whole, South Korea has chosen not to enforce the kind of harsh measures adopted by neighboring China, also now emerging from its own crisis. The international community should consider their own situations and review both the Chinese and South Korean approaches, and apply the measures that work best in their own countries. That's the South Korean Prime Minister. Something that they do there. And I've totally made reference of this before on the show. Is they cover the microphones in a paper wrap? Remember when I mentioned that when Trump comes up or Nancy Pelosi comes up, they'll wipe some things down. Like Nancy, she wiped down the podium and she wiped down the windscreen for the microphone, but she didn't wipe down the arm or the actual microphone. And of course, she grabs that immediately to adjust it, just like Trump does. But here, they've got little paper wrapped. I guess these must be products that you could order to install on top of microphones. Why don't we have these, especially for press conferences, with all these people getting up there talking? The prime Minister's got it dialed in here. South Korea's guiding principle in fighting the disease has been to get the voluntary support of the public, rather than imposing lockdowns or completely closing borders. What? But they have super crowded cities, and they're actually succeeding. What's Well, how could such a thing be done? With the outbreak seemingly under control, it's a strategy that appears to have worked. Well, we must know the secret. There must be some money. Maybe they're printing money. They must be printing money. That must be it. The government's transparent handling of the outbreak has won the general trust of the people. Oh well, great for them. We can't do that. Nobody trusts the United States federal government. Not even the federal government. The government's transparent handling of the outbreak has won the general trust of the people. Ah, we're screwed. And although new cases continue to be reported, there's a feeling the worst is over. As you know, arrivals at Incheon Airport are being tested for the virus at the walk-through testing station. Personally, I don't think we are in a serious situation. At this moment, just follow the Korean way. That's the only way to resolve the issue. Looking at other parts of the world which are now in the midst of crisis or just starting to grapple with what South Korea has already gone through is reason for many here to be thankful. They have very stylish face masks over there too, because I think it's a little more common. So they already got some nice ones. Moscow has been a little. Cocky around this whole thing, bragging that、uh, Mother Russia doesn't have the COVID nineteen. Okay, that was horrible. I almost had it there for a second, though. However, that all changed after Putin made nice with a doctor who tested positive. As far as photo ops go, this seemed like a good one for Vladimir Putin. He put on a bright yellow hazmat suit and gas mask and toured Moscow's main infectious disease hospital. He walks around. He looks like. Somebody out of the Chernobyl TV series. He's literally covered head to toe in a hazmat suit. It's such an example of staged government propaganda. He goes around. He meets the, all these people who are sick. They're wearing masks. 
But the entire time before the cameras are out, he's just walking around, shucking and jiving, shaking hands with everybody, you know, social distancing my arsehole. With top coronavirus doctor, Denis Pratsenko. But not before he shook Pratsenko's hand, rode in a small elevator together and spent a lot of time not practicing social distancing. Today, Pratsenko acknowledged he tested positive sending Russian state TV into a frenzy. It's around everyone now. It's even around the president. All of those who are supposed to save us from Corona, exclaimed the host. We may need some faith healers. (laughs) (laughs) Not so cocky now, are you, Russia? You know what you got to do is uh, do it like uh, Brazil. Uh, They just... uh, they just have a leader that makes Donald Trump look like he's following the most rigid standards. If there is one world leader who seems to have had enough of experts, it might be Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro. While others work from home, this 65-year-old president has been enjoying a roadside barbecue with fans. And offering words like these to his nervous nation of over 200 million people. The virus is out there. We have to confront it. But let's confront it like men, not women. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's your message? That's your message. The virus is out there. We have to confront it. But let's confront it like men, not women. My millennials, stay woke! So this guy is really making a jackass out of himself, of course. And um, you just you, you just want a guy like this to get sick. You just want him to get sick. We have to confront it. But let's confront it like men, not women. Let's fight the virus with reality, which is life. We're all going to die one day. Bolsonaro now seems to be in a battle with almost everyone. As he ignored advice from his own health ministry, the governors of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo chose a different tack. Sometimes, sometimes you realize... You don't got it so bad. Your your president could be that guy or the guy from the Philippines. There's also a moment of levity during um, a press conference that Trump was having. The CNN feed switched over to the uh, Cuomo boys, uh, Chris Cuomo and his brother, the governor of New York, <laughs> which is just weird because he looks just like an older version of Chris Cuomo. And... Um, it's a pretty long interview, but thanks to I, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot the person's name, but thanks to uh, an unfiltered listener who linked this up in the Discord Clips channel, I managed to find this nugget in their overall conversation, which I got to admit made me smile and that I could appreciate right now. Well, I mean, you shouldn't criticize yourself that you're not one of the people that mom saw as worthy to, you know, teach how to cook and make tomato sauce. What? 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 Like this just came out of nowhere. People that mom saw as worthy to, you know, teach how to cook and make tomato sauce. Well, look, I, I'm sure she would have. It's just that you spent so much more time in the kitchen, Chris, than I did. Uh, you were just available to her. You know, you had that, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, always like mom's little helper in the kitchen. I really respect that. <laughs> savage. That's so savage. Right there. Right there off the top of his head. He just eviscerates his little brother. Oh, man. Totally savage. You know, you had that mm. uh, that uh, always like mom's little helper in the kitchen. I really respect that. So I think mm. it's because you were there 
and uh, always underfoot. Yeah, see, I don't see it that way. How many? I mean, I you don't spend years in the kitchen when you think of it. I don't. I don't yeah. see it that way. I didn't spend years. Well, in the I didn't kitchen, mean. I didn't I, mean. To, I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't mean well, to offend you. I think you, maybe you did, but that's way. okay. There's no great. offense taken. That There's you no helped. offense taken. No, but what I think, I'm saying no, no, is, please, that you helped mom in the kitchen was a beautiful thing. I- <laughs> no, what? That's not offensive. What? You got something wrong with people who help mom in the kitchen? That There's you no helped. offense taken. No, but what I think, I'm saying no, no, is, please, that you helped mom in the kitchen was a beautiful thing. I had to do work. I didn't help mom you know? in the kitchen. Like, look at this. You said something a little different. She taught me things that she chose not to teach you. Is what I'm trying to say. May you don't have to play ask, the sound. May I ask you a question? But I just hold on. Can I just hold on ask a question? You, you, you where a are you? I'm having a, where are you? Can I ask where you? Where are you? I'm in a. Yeah, I'm in I, the I don't recognize where you where are. I am. I'm in my basement. But where are you physically? I'm in oh, my you're basement. You're in your basement. That's what I just said. Yeah, that's where I am. Are you in your basement? I said. Well, you spend yeah. a lot of time there, right? Christina says she sends you there a lot. So kitchen and basement, that's where you've spent <laughs> your life. Okay. Here's what I'm- <laughs> Just amazing. Just totally ripped him up. And uh, you know what? When you're talking about these kinds of things every now and then, you can kind of appreciate it. President Trump is telling Americans to prepare for a very painful two-week period as the coronavirus death toll continues to climb. All right. So this is CBSN, which is the low-rent version of CBS for online consumption. I want to play this clip for you because last week I got called out last week, old habit. Uh, what was it? Monday's up. I don't know. Earlier this week when I, uh, I kind of gave, I kind of gave the press a hard time for their relentless attack for just Trump, not taking it seriously enough. Like, okay. I think, is there a range for debate there on how that affects the overall action plan? Maybe. I think the things that would be a more fair analysis would be looking at when the task force was assembled, when they initially started issuing guidance. Um, I think depending on who you ask, if you ask governors, they would say that the federal government gave them money very quick, but then have messed up other aspects of it. So it's really kind of a complicated issue. Okay, fine. But do we have to bring it up every single press conference every single time we talk about this i'm going somewhere with this i'm making a point but i want to play this for you as an example so then we can talk about this a little more cbs news white house correspondent weija jang is standing by to bring us the latest from washington weija the numbers shared in yesterday's briefing marked a real stark contrast to what president trump was saying just a few weeks ago i got the sense watching that briefing yesterday that those of you in the white house press corps had not seen President Trump like this in quite some time. Okay. All right. I mean, fine. That's a good point. It could just be left right there. We could just leave it there, and then we could get into the actual information that I've already presented to you earlier in the show. We could just get, because that's what's important. That's why I led with the information, not with this aspect of the analysis. This is further into the conversation, because what they're doing here is, They're delaying access to information and they're leading with their own bias and they they do a worse job because of it. They can't get over themselves. They have to just chew on it, just like Trump can't get over shit. Trump can't let things go. He'll still argue with a reporter about the size of the inauguration crowd. He'll still argue over all of those little tiny details. He never lets anything go. The press is the same damn way. You have two 
pig-headed groups going at each other here, and they just lace it up, and they make it sound good. But the reality is they're just as bad. Yeah, Vlad, during other times of crises, we have seen the president change his tone to a more serious one. But this was something completely different from that, because he wore on his face the fact that he understands what is ahead for Americans. He understands the numbers. And uh, this was a remarkable um, way for him to present himself, because, as you mentioned, for weeks Frankly, he downplayed the virus, and that is not an opinion. That is not my analysis. That is going back and leafing through transcripts and looking at quotes and re-watching the president on television, uh, telling Americans that this was not a big deal in some ways. You know, he compared it to the flu. Um, he said that more people die every year of the flu, and so far we only have 15 cases. That was, uh, you know, several, several weeks ago. That's just one example. But we have those documents to show that his message was very, very different in the beginning. But last night, he could not have been more blunt. They still haven't told you what it is. I could keep it plain, but I think you're getting my point. They just can't let it go. Clearly, this is going to lead somewhere. This is them building for something that will happen after this clears. The after action report that Nancy Pelosi mentioned last episode, that's got to be this has got to be setting that in people's mind, reminding you that this was a thing because we are now two and a half weeks, maybe three weeks of them hammering this point Every time they set up to talk about this, it's obnoxious. But beyond that, it undermines the credibility of the media, which causes the public to lose trust in the information that's coming from them. And fundamentally, that's something we've been struggling with this entire crisis. Nobody trusts the media. Nobody trusts the government. And so nobody's doing what they say completely because nobody knows if it's truly as bad. Nobody knows what to believe. And they can claim it's because Trump said something. But here's a harsh reality. Most of Americans have no fucking idea what Trump is saying in the press conferences. It's the people that listen to this show that know. It's the press that are in that bubble. They know. It's not impacting Americans. They're not staying up to date. They're not an informed democracy. The fundamental assumption is flawed. It's getting in the way of accurate reporting. It's causing people to not take a situation seriously because they don't take the people delivering the information seriously. Why is flat earth a thing? Why? Because nobody trusts any source of authority anymore. All of our institutions have lost credibility. And it's that kind of crap. It's that kind of crap right there that gets it welded into every single thing they do that causes that trust to erode away. One report at a time. And it's not just me saying it, and I know I've been saying it for a while, but I am grateful to say others have noticed too, like your good buddy who you hang out with all the time, Joe Rogan. It's for fucking koi ponds. Yeah. It's poison. They took poison. Yeah. They, they just, died from taking poison. They misread or misunderstood or something. Dude, the media today <laughs> is, is kind of spooky with their hatred of Trump is getting in the way of the accuracy of some people's reporting of the news. And that's a perfect example. By resorting to clickbait and saying that they heard it from Trump, but he, that's not what he said. What, he, what he's talking about is a different kind of chloroquine. There's mm -hmm. more than one different kind of it, right? Right. But if they just said real simply, 
that these people died. Please be careful. There is more than one different kind of chloroquine, yeah. and chloroquine hasn't been shown definitively to work yet, and it's not necessarily safe to take. If they said that, that would be great. But instead, they had to say the president told people to take it. But that's not what he said. And then it just becomes repeated over and over and over again. And it it diminishes credibility. And then the only places that aren't saying it are things that are, or I should say are places that are no more trustworthy, but they're just saying it in a different way. Like Fox News, for example, it it, it creates the very problem that gets that, that just gets misinformation out there. And it, oh, it's so frustrating because they could just shut up and report it. Okay, I've made my, I'll shut up now. I've made my case. But I think the nugget I'd like you to take away from that little bit of analysis there is the fundamental undermining of trust, which was clearly demonstrated in the 2016 election, is now being demonstrated right now during this pandemic. I think we're seeing it. And I think we're seeing the result of it. They've, They've dug this grave for themselves and they're just keep they just keep shoveling. All right, okay, now I'm really done because I want to talk about the economy a little bit more. Even before the phase three 2.2 rescue package, 2.2 trillion, technically 6.2 trillion, because some of it comes from the reserve and the treasury too. What you just saw in the headlines was what comes from the government's the federal government's purse. But there's a bunch of other guys like the Treasury and the Federal Reserve kicking in some money. So it's actually $6.2 trillion. And because everybody's locked down and at home and not spending any money, it's not really a stimulus. It's more like a bailout rescue package just to keep the lights on for a few more weeks. So really, we kind of expect there's going to be a phase four. Got to get that money. Show me the money! And before we've even written some of the first checks from phase three, there's already conversations around what we might do with money from phase four. Uh, our Eamon Javer is reporting on uh, how quickly plans are being made for a phase four stimulus package. His reporting suggests that right now the emphasis of the White House is on uh, executing uh, phase three. Can you talk about that? This is Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Well, again, let me just say the most important issue is execution on what we have. We have a, a lot of money. We need to get that into hardworking Americans' hands. We also have facilities that we're working very closely with the Fed that will inject a lot of money into this economy quickly. As I've said, we need to get these things going in the next few weeks. H having money that's sitting around and distributing in four months does no good to hardworking Americans. So he tries to put the kibosh on the talk of the phase four, but... <laughs> You know, the problem is Trump tweets. And so Trump tweets about what we might do with $2 trillion for the infrastructure of the United States of America in phase four. Jim references, I think, in part in his question, but I'd love to follow up. The president recently tweeting about a big infrastructure effort, perhaps as much as another $2 trillion. Is that a real effort? Are you in negotiations at all with uh, within the House and the Senate in terms of trying to get something as this is called a phase four sort of plan. Is that a real effort or is that just some random crazy ass thing the president tweeted again? That's really what the context of his question is. That's the day and age we live in where the president may tweet something that is truly informed because, you know, he's the president and talks to people. Or it could just be a random ass idea that came to him or something that the last person he just talked to suggested. You never know. Maybe he heard it on Fox News. So in this day and age, we actually have to ask, is this real or is this bullshit? So good old Steven Mnuchin back on the phone, Treasury Secretary. 
Well, as you know, the president's been very interested in infrastructure. This goes back to the campaign. The, the president very much wants to rebuild the country. And with interest rates low, that, that's something that's very important to him. That's a key thing there. And it really is. It's Trump back in campaign mode. It sounds like just like the kind of stuff he was saying in 2016. I grabbed a clip from a press conference earlier this evening. In the, you, you mentioned in this congressional bill, the next, the sort of phase four, you would like to see something. If there is a there. phase four, but we're, we're certainly looking at certain things. We want to help restaurants, entertainment. We want to help because it's jobs, not that restaurants, it's jobs, tremendous amounts of jobs. Uh, so we're looking at that. We're looking at infrastructure. I mean, we think of it. We will have spent $8 trillion, and, you know, it's way back, we're way pulled back, but we will have spent $8 trillion in the Middle East. Whoa! Whoa! Wait, wait, what year is it? Is it, is it 2015? What am I hearing? Is, oh, right. Candidate Trump. Oh, yeah, that guy. Right. Wall guy. You know, it's way back, we're way pulled back, but we will have spent $8 trillion in the Middle East. And yet our roads are in bad shape, our bridges, our tunnels, bad shape. And we're going to be the talk of the world again soon. But we want $2 trillion. We will have spent in the Middle East. And all we got out of it was death. The establishment really hates it when he says this about the Middle East. You know, it dishonors the memory. What about this? Don't say it's about the oil. They hate it. So I'll be curious to see if the next day or so this pops up on different news outlets. This was so fresh. I clipped it just you know a little bit before I sat down to record and then didn't really check to see if anybody would run with it. But this is the kind of thing that Trump will say sometimes where somebody can twist it into he's attacking veterans or something. Two trillion we will have spent in the Middle East and all we got out of it was death. And cost. But all we got out of it was death. Millions of people. You have to look at the other side, too. Millions and millions of people killed. You're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to say we killed millions of people. The president of the United States up on his big old bully pulpit saying that we killed millions and millions of people. I think he forgot for a second that he's holding office and was thinking he's just running. People and cost. But all we got out of it was death. Millions of people. You have to look at the other side, too. Millions and millions of people killed. Our great soldiers, thousands killed, so many wounded, hurt. And yet when we want to go and fix a road someplace, we want to do what we want to do in our country. You know, it's time that we spend money on our country. That's what we're going to do. It's time that we start spending on our roads and our bridges and our schools and all of the things that we're supposed to be spending on. It would put people back to work. Um, Stuff drives me crazy. Remember how just last episode I was saying, if we're going to spend this much money, couldn't we just do single payer? And then here's Trump. Uh, it, It floors me how the other candidates get away with what would be decried socialism to the extreme if Bernie Sanders were to say it, is it, what is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? Just, it's just really something. Uh, and then again, if you're going to just print, 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 print money, I kind of think maybe that's the way the place to spend it instead of buying assets from banks and putting monies in their pockets. And you got all these mortgages out there. It seems like it's just the tip of the iceberg, but the early numbers, while they're not dramatically awful, are potentially leading to a snowball effect.
Thanks so much for joining us. We I should say for the housing market. Heard from one mortgage CEO who said they got 8,000 calls last Sunday from borrowers. Are you starting to get any numbers, any read on how many borrowers are going to ask for forbearance? By the way, this is the FHFA director, the Federal Housing Commission or Authority or uh, director, and um, he's doing an interview on CNBC. So she's been looking at the numbers. He just got done doing a little press conference. He's answering her questions. Go. Diane, we are, and I really want to caveat that the numbers I'm about to give you are very rough, very preliminary, and if you talk to me in two days, they'll probably be different. But with that in mind, my estimates now for Fannie and Freddie's book, we're hearing about take up of about just over 1% of their book. So April looks like it'll be approximately 300,000 loans for Fannie and Freddie. For the overall market, that would translate approximately into 700,000 loans. We are thinking that closer to May, we'll see that for Fannie and Freddie's book closer to a million. We're talking about mortgages that will need forbearance up maybe 12 months. So forbearance is essentially a way to delay payment Uh, But, of course, that means that then those loan holders aren't making any money. So he's saying maybe by May, we could be looking like a million mortgages that are on park. I suspect it's a lot more because people like myself are probably going, well, let's see how this thing goes for the next couple of months. I could make it for a little bit. We are thinking that closer to May, we'll see that for Fannie and Freddie's book, closer to a million. So probably by May, a little more than two million. This is between 3 and 5% of the market, so I really do want to emphasize we're not seeing the worst-case scenarios of 25 30 40% take-up. We're seeing closer to 1%, 2% take-up. And I also want to emphasize the lenders I'm talking to are telling me that 70 to 80% of their calls are people who aren't yet facing a hardship but really just want to know what their options are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so like he says, it's not 20 When we start hearing 20%, that's when it's holy crap. The market's really cratering. I, though, think that even even a few percentages is they're going to have a hard time absorbing that. He might be he might be a little optimistic there. Media companies have also been impacted. I I wondered how this would impact podcasts. I know that seems such an arbitrary small thing, so I didn't really bring it up on the show. But now I have this clip here that I want to play a little bit and then let's chat about that. Welcome back to Squawk Box. As you might expect, with millions of Americans staying home, TV viewing is way up. But the coronavirus is also hitting the ad spending world pretty hard and putting the media industry in a tough spot. Julia Borston joins us now with more on that. That tough spot being that views are way up and ad dollars are way down. So normally in a time where they could sell, 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 sell. They got no ad buys. And putting the media industry in a tough spot. Julia Borston joins us now with more on that. Julia. Andrew, that's right. The media giants are under pressure from a dramatic pullback in ad spending. The pause of all live events and the closure of movie theaters and theme parks outweighing the benefit from the rise in TV ratings and of streaming at home. Now, Now, before she goes on, I want to bring something up to you. She's going to low-key slip in a fact about the state of media that is horrible. And that is that there is just a small handful of global companies that own all of the mainstream media you consume. 
Every local television affiliate, every radio station, newspaper, magazine, network television news, the infrastructure to deliver that information, the satellites in space. I'm telling you, it is a small, tiny handful of companies. And if they begin to consolidate even further, we are so screwed. Of course, on the flip side, it's this very reality that makes shows like your unfilter program an absolute necessity. So I guess it's a good thing for the show. Outweighing the benefit from the rise in TV ratings and of streaming at home. Now, the seven major media companies warned. There you go. Right there. And uh, there's a few you'll be familiar with. Disney, Fox, Viacom, Comcast. But there's a couple others in there that you're not as familiar with. And they all want that ad money. And if they don't make it, they might have to start selling to each other. And then maybe we'll be in a world where we have three or four major media companies globally. ...ratings and of streaming at home. Now, the seven major media companies warned that coronavirus would have a meaningful impact on their results. Disney, Comcast, AT&T, Fox, Viacom, Sony, and Discovery all issuing those warnings. Now, it is worth noting that a number of analysts do see long-term opportunities in these companies all of these companies will see some benefit from an increase in streaming and TV time at home. But in primetime TV viewing increased about 10% the week of March 16th from the prior week. But these companies are also suffering from the loss of box office revenue, as well as advertisers, many of them pausing their spending. I've been wondering if that would hit podcasts. There is a podcast boom, and I wonder if this is going to curb that. There are nearly a million Active podcasts in iTunes. Active defined as a show having an episode released in the last two weeks. It's not, as of the last number release, a million yet. Plus, there's all the podcasts that are no longer active. And there's podcasts that release less frequently than once every two weeks. And then, of course, YouTube. The YouTube ad bubble may also begin to deflate a bit. I mean... If you're going to cut back, where's the first place you're going to cut as a company? Probably YouTube and podcasts and radio and television ads. They're very expensive and nobody's consuming right now. So that's something I'm, I'm going to be watching with interest. I don't know how much I'll share with you guys. If you're curious about that kind of stuff or want to chat about it with me, hit me up in the Discord. I'd love to chat about it there. Um, I think that's a fascinating angle, of course, because of just my time in the industry. Let's shift gears, though, to something that I'm trying to really learn a lot more about. I have to be very humble when we do the subject of oil on this podcast because what do I know? You know, like it's I've tried to learn a lot over the years. I mean, we're nearly 300 episodes in and I've I've made good progress. I understand it a lot better now, especially more than ever. This current dip in the oil market has been a great opportunity for me to have a much better understanding of how the market dynamics work. The thing is, we're in this thing for a little while. This is this story is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating, and we start with uh, your buddy Jim Cramer. Well, I, I think that the other thing we have to watch is uh, the oil patch is falling apart. Uh, I know you know Whiting. Whiting filed for uh, bankruptcy today. I think that they're that. Uh, first of many. And what happens is a lot of people are saying, "Wait a second, uh, this is the other, this is the other bomb that's dropping." 
And these are companies that have been the greatest employer. I mean, Whiting had fabulous uh, Midwest had Bakken assets at one time. Now, the Bakken, you can't make any money in the Bakken. You can't make any money uh, in Eagleford. You can't make any money pretty much anywhere, certainly in Colorado. And I think that this is something we have to keep an eye on, because when we start seeing the layoffs, some of the layoffs are going to bounce back and some of them are not coming back at all. That's a big part of it. Trump was asked about the oil price war in his press conference today. I thought he had a couple of interesting answers, so I grabbed those for you. Question on economics. Uh, Just with oil, um, oil prices are very low. The Saudis have increased production. Uh, I know that you've spoken about liking low oil prices, but then there's also the industry aspect. Like from 1950, these oil prices. And that's when they had big dollars, big, beautiful dollars. So do you do you advocate cuts? Do you advocate cuts to production? Do you? Well, look, we have a great oil industry and the oil industry is being ravaged. And as you know, Russia and I spoke to President Putin, we had a great call. Russia. Saudi Arabia, I spoke with the crown prince, so we had a great call. But um, I think that they will work it out over the next few days. He thinks they'll work it out. He keeps saying that. He goes on to say that. I noted it wasn't a perfect call, just a great call. He goes on to say, oh, they'll work it out. It's in their best interest to work it out. The solution's very simple. In a follow-up statement, though, he says something that makes me believe perhaps he's okay with the price being low. The assumption had been that Trump would want to get the price back up because Texas, Tejas, is a big voter base for him. And the oil industry is huge in Texas. That was just sort of the standard basic political dynamic thinking applied to the situation. But in this clip, it sounds like he might be banking on low fuel prices so that when the COVID-19 crisis clears. Wow, that's a pretty alliterative. COVID-19 He'd have to drop the 19 COVID crisis clears when the COVID crisis clears. He wants low fuel prices to act as a boost for the economy, specifically like the airlines. Gasoline is going to be 99 cents a gallon and less. You know that that's already starting. It's popping up 99 cents. So that's like giving a massive tax cut to people of our country. When we try and get the airlines going, if if fuel is costing much less, it helps with getting the airlines, which is always a tough business, always has been a tough business. But with that being said, look, I'm, I want to get that industry back where it was. We were doing records in that industry also. We want to get it back to where it was. So I think that Saudi Arabia, Russia, they're negotiating, they're talking, and I think they'll come up with something. Uh, I'm going to meet with the oil companies on Friday. I'm going to meet with uh, independent oil producers also on Friday or Saturday maybe Sunday. Uh, but we're having a lot of meetings on it. I think I know what to do to solve it. But if if they're unable to solve it, then I think I know what to do to solve it. But he doesn't say what, of course. And he says he's not going to. Uh, I never know when he says those kinds of things, if he has any idea or not. The thing that strikes me is analysts in Saudi Arabia seem to think that this is going all the way to where the market will end up putting a cap on oil price at like around $45. So they'll come to a gentleman's agreement out there amongst their oil cohorts between Moscow and Saudi Arabia and other locations, and they'll say, all right, let's all produce to 45 Let's produce it, fix the price at $45 a barrel. We increase and decrease production to maintain $45 a barrel. That's in Russia's best interest. That's in Saudi Arabia's best interest. And it's devastating to the United States of America. 
at least to our shale oil industry. We actually will benefit because we import a lot of that. We import, we make it sound like we don't import oil, but we import quite a bit of oil still. We actually, a lot of the oil we produce, we don't use in the United States. We don't use it here. We don't refine it here. We ship it off to Canada. They're like one of our biggest exports of oil, of shale, of the, of the crude oil that we produce. And then for the oil that we either refine here or store, we import it for the most part. Not completely, but for the most part. And so cheap oil from Saudi Arabia and Russia benefits us, but it also gets us hooked. It gets us hooked on the good sauce, and it shuts down our industry. Now, it doesn't take the shale oil out of the ground. It's still there. So in theory, 10 years later or five years later, when the prices have come back up, you could restart that, but you'd have no jabs. You got no jobs. You got no skills. It's just not very economical or very practical. They don't have just the ability at the oil companies to just print unlimited money while this crisis is going on. No, that's that's the yeah, that's the Fed, and they can just print as much as they want. Apparently, this is Neil Kashikari. Yes, he's got cash in his name. It's spelled with a K, and he's doing a piece with CBS. And listen to what he says. This past Sunday, the Fed dropped interest rates nearly to zero. Then, every day last week, it announced emergency lending programs. It pledged to spend at least $700 billion supporting mortgages, banks, money market mutual funds, corporate bonds, and lending to central banks of other countries because the dollar is the currency of world trade. We are being very aggressive, and I think our chairman, Jay Powell, has learned from the experience of 2008. We're moving much faster than we moved in 2008. We're being more aggressive. Is there more we can do? Yes. Is there more we may end up doing? Yes. But I think we're being very aggressive, and I, I think that's the right thing. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. So what does that mean? Well, you'll find out. Can you characterize everything that the Fed has done this past week as essentially flooding the system with money? Yes. Exactly. That's not necessarily a good thing. In fact, it makes certain parts of the industry very uneasy, the kind that would back securities. And there's no end to your ability to do that. There is no end to our ability to do that. No, no limit on how much money they can print. And there's no end to your ability to do that. There is no end to our ability to do that. First of all, I hate how CBS always leads the witness, but... That's a remarkable statement. Exactly. And there's no end to your ability to do that. There is no end to our ability to do that. That seems like that's going to come back to bite us in the butt. That doesn't seem like a good thing. It seems like if you're un printing unlimited amounts of money and your currency is essentially pegged to the price of oil, which is tanking, you can't guarantee this situation will remain forever, can you? It seems like you can guarantee that we can print money. That you could always do, but you can't guarantee the value of that money. Exactly. And there's no end to your ability to do that. There is no end to our ability to do that. What did we learn from 2008 when you were in the Treasury Department, and how is that being applied today? There are two big mistakes when I look back at 2008 that we made that I think are relevant today. Number one, we were always too slow and too timid in responding to the crisis. The reason is we didn't know how bad it was going to get. And we didn't want to overreact. And it turned out it got really, really bad. And the right answer should have been overreacting to try to avoid the devastating 
recession that we ended up happening. So today, whether it's healthcare policymakers, fiscal policymakers, which means Congress or the Federal Reserve, we should all be erring on the side of overreacting to try to avoid the worst economic outcomes. Generally not a big fan of advocating overreaction. In fact, I'm kind of a big fan of saying keep calm, stay rational. Side of overreacting <laughs> to try to avoid the worst economic outcomes. And number two, in 2008, we tried to be very targeted in helping homeowners, only helping homeowners who needed a little bit of help because a lot of Americans were angry at the thought of their neighbor getting a bailout for being irresponsible, or so they thought. So we tried to target our programs. It ended up we didn't help very many people. We would have been much better off if we had been much more generous in our support for homeowners, deserving and not deserving. We would have had a less serious crisis. So my advice to Congress as they're designing their programs to help workers and to help small businesses, err on being generous. His advice, show me the money. Show me the money. No limit. Print all you want. Set up more printers. What could go wrong? Oof. I know, I, I try not to make too big of a deal out of the economy right now, but I feel like this is going to be the story long term. It'll be the, the economy as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. It's going to be something else. But we got more to do. More to cover. $2.99 will come out late this weekend. But you know what I'm going to plug now. I'm so excited about this. Monday evening. Join me and my buddy, Mr. Chase. Perhaps he'll bring his buddy, Bill, for a live stream of episode 300. Unfilter.show slash live. Unfilter.show slash discord. If you go in there, you'll find out when we're live. I got a bot that notifies. But also... You'll see all the conversation. People will be talking about it. You'll know. 5 p.m. Pacific is when we plan to do it. We'll see because, you know, I got work, so sometimes that stuff runs, and then I got to get over, get set up. So I'm going sh- to give it a shot, and I'd love to have you there. Get subscribed, unfilter.show, slash subscribe, because we will release it after the fact. It won't just be live only, but it will be a special experience. 2.99 is coming out before that, though, late this weekend. Thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of Unfiltered. And I'll see you right back here, not tomorrow, not the day after that, but probably the day after that, eh? Mommy needs a joint.